morning. Our scripture reading comes from Psalm 45. Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, consider, incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as Zach mentioned, I do remember many joyful trips coming to be with you, and it's great to be back after a few years. Um, Today's a day for remembering, and today is an occasion for joy. One year is wrapping up, and we are on the brink of yet another, and so it's appropriate. It's natural that we would look back in remembrance. And it's necessary that we glance ahead in hope. As we look back, we can note it's been a tough year. One war in Ukraine has been matched by another in Israel. And the tragedy, the challenge... The corruption, the difficulty, it's not merely something that we can speak of being way out there. It's something that we know in our own homes and hearts too. 
that we have known struggle this year. And one of the great gifts of the Word of God, the Word that so many of you have given yourselves to studying throughout this year, that others will join in beginning tomorrow and the year ahead, is the candor and the clarity in naming difficult times before God. The book of Psalms is unique in the candor it brings to name not merely the mountaintop moments, but also the valley experiences. Context is important. We often live our lives in the dark and amidst the difficult. In the three Psalms just before this one that I've read, we see Psalms that speak of challenge, of trial, of opposition, of frustration. The 150 Psalms are divided into five books. And the second book begins in Psalm 42, where repeatedly we see the question raised, how long, O Lord? The cancer keeps coming back. How long, O Lord? The relationship continues to be strained. How long, O Lord? The battle with that sin or temptation doesn't seem to be getting easier. How long, O Lord? We turn to Psalm 43 and the stakes are raised. Not only does the psalmist say, how long, O Lord, but now the psalmist offers the plea, vindicate me, O God. Knowing that the struggle and the challenge and the faltering and sometimes failing moments may lead others to claim that one is a failure, that one is outside God's own love and care. And so the plea is now, vindicate me, O God. Vindicate me in my own heart. Vindicate me before others. Vindicate me, most of all, in your heart. And then we turn to Psalm 44. Psalm 44 speaks uh, an even more dire tone. The plea for help, the question how long, the request vindicate me is now matched by the question, the sometimes doubting question, when will you arise? The psalmist has been so far under for so very long that now the question is, God, are you sleeping? God, when will you wake? God, when will you rise? God, when will you act? And friends, one of the great gifts of Christianity and of the Scripture, the living Word of God that God gives us, is that there are words here that God gives us to cry out in faith when we are in the valley. And some of you are there. There are words that God gives us to sing when we know sorrow and when we struggle with sin and when we experience tragedy. This is why Christianity has birthed things like the blues, the capacity of human hearts and voices to say it as it is, not to sugarcoat it, but to speak truth to the darkness and the difficulty and the depravity of this world, and if we're honest, of our homes and hearts too. But here we come to Psalm 45. And Psalm 45 reminds us that Christianity is not merely a medicine for the wounded. It is not merely a word for the dying. Christianity is also joy 
and happiness. And the God revealed in Jesus Christ is not merely interested in somehow sparing us from abject pain and from rescuing us from the worst of circumstances. He is intent, he is committed, he is pledged to sharing the fullness of his life and joy with us. And so amidst a world that is dark, in the face of a year that's at times been difficult and trying, this psalm reminds us that we need to look up, that we need to look out, that we need to step forward in hope because there is a happiness, there is a joy There is a blessedness that God remains intent on giving, on being, on sharing with his daughters and his sons, with all his people. As we look at this psalm, we can see at its beginning and its end, it names this joy and happiness. Verse 1 speaks, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. And by the time we we get to the last few lines in verse 15, we read, With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. We see that happiness and joy and gladness mark this psalm from beginning to its end. Oftentimes we can forget that. We can be in survival mode. We can be so very prone to minimize our hopes, to shape our expectations, to reduce them, lest we get hurt, disappointed, and frustrated. And the challenge of walking in hope is knowing that we ought to speak candidly of the struggle without reducing our expectation for what God longs to bring and to be for his people. That we will know death and sin and darkness. And yet, in the very face of that, God is a God who works resurrection. God is a God who provides fullness and happiness and joy. And there's two things we learn about the happiness of the Christian in and through the words of this psalm. First, as we look at verses 2 through 9, we learn that the Christian's happiness depends on having this sort of God. The Christian's happiness depends on having just this sort of God. We see a number of things that are said of this God, this King in verses 2 through 9. The language of power and of might, the language of strength and deliverance, the language most of all of victory is declared here. Look at verses 4 and 5. We see here, In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. It goes on even more specifically to say, Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. This one is one who rides out majestically and gloriously in victory because this one is one 
who can strike his foes dead in the heart. Here we come to the not surprising language of a king, a powerful one, a mighty one who exerts strength, who rides out in majesty, pomp and circumstance, and whose victory is praised. It's a reminder, one of the realities of the Word of God is that the Word of God does come in the words of men. It comes in human language. It comes in terms that we use elsewhere in life. Centuries ago, people did believe, for instance, that when you turn to the the Greek of the New Testament, it was so-called Holy Ghost Greek. That is, it was a language created all uniquely just for this one book. We've since learned that they simply hadn't yet gathered similar documents to realize that it's actually written in the most common Greek of that day. Koine, or common, everyday Greek, the Greek of text messages, the Greek of notes that you leave on your refrigerator, and so forth. God's Word comes through human words. God is good, God is strong, and we can speak of a meal being good or of a team's defense being strong. We use language elsewhere in life and we see God using that very same language to reveal himself perfectly, inspiring prophets and apostles to gift us his living and active word that reveals him perfectly. It's a reminder that we need to listen for the way words are used, not simply the familiarity of terms that we know elsewhere. We know others who claim to be powerful. We know others who strut their stuff in pomp and circumstance. We know mighty ones who claim to have victory upon victory. What's unique, what's remarkable What's crucial for Christian hope and happiness is the kind of power this God reveals here. God is powerful. God is mighty. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is in a class all unto himself. And yet, what we see here is that his power is on display in surprising ways. We tend to think about powerful ones, whether they are political or business powers, whether they are social influencers or celebrities. We think of the powerful as those who exploit opportunity for the advancement of their cause. We've gotten good at being cynical, and we've got plenty of reasons and rational uh, prompts for doing so. We are well aware of the way people make use of power for their own ends. And we just wait, don't we, for the next scandal where someone we don't like, someone not of our kind, someone of another party or another persuasion shows themselves to be corrupt. But again and again, we see that we so often expect power to be displayed in exploitative fashion. Those who have, taking advantage of those who have not. Those who have, using what they have to get further ahead. Notice in the face of that what we see here. 
Notice in the face of that what is said of God. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. God is a God whose might and power are not about God getting His. They're not about God acting to the detriment of others and the betterment of Himself. God's power and might are on display. God's victory is manifest in the cause of truth, of meekness, and of uprightness. Christians, if we're to have hope in a happiness yet to come, it lies in this, that our God is a God who is not using us. Our God is a God who is not dependent on us. Our God is a God whose power, whose might, whose victory and majesty are as on display in His meekness and in His service as in His majesty. God's power is made perfect, we are told, in weakness, in God's provision for the lowly. Rather than God's climbing a ladder, God's making use of the resources of others. Just this past year, I was in New York and I went to a a performance of Camelot. Perhaps some of you have seen that. If not, many of you will know the Arthurian legends of Camelot, of King Arthur, of the Knights of the Round Table. I was struck again how very strange this whole story is. It's meant to be idyllic. Now, there's so much that's so very typical. It, It reads like any sort of sitcom might. People are falling in love with the people they ought not fall in love with. There's intrigue. There's deceit. Uh, there's skirmishes on the outside and there are schisms on the inside. All of that's typical. What's so very startling about Camelot is this image of one who has power, who has the rightful claim to the throne and who decides that the, the order of the day ought to be a round table. The idea of power not being used simply to get himself ahead or his own ahead, but... Rather, the idea that might would be used for right. Not simply that right would be whatever might says. And what we see there is the the long and steady influence of Christianity, of passages like this upon the imagination of a people reached by the gospel for hundreds of years at that point. The idea that power would be on display in meekness and truth, uprightness and justice. Having that sort of God, that sort of mighty one, that sort of King of kings and Lord of lords, it changes one's expectations. We see this perhaps most fully in the lengths to which God is willing to go to prove victorious. We read in Romans 3 that God put forward His only Son as a hilasterion, a propitiatory offering for sin. And He did this because having passed over former sins, He needed to demonstrate His justice. God wasn't content to shake the etch-a-sketch, start over. 
God wasn't content to simply forgive and forget. God being true and just, God being upright, God knew that the law demanded blood and God was willing to offer his own on our behalf. God doesn't finagle with the terms of the covenant. God doesn't change the order of the day according to his whim. God is constant and faithful, steadfast and unchanging. And thus God can be trusted. He is meek and merciful. And he is holy and just. He's the sort of God you can depend on. He proves that passage in Romans 3 tells us at its conclusion to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. He makes a way that he might show the way of power and might to be the way of service and compassion. Friends, there's a second thing we see here as well. Human happiness involves beautiful dependence. And we see this in verses 10 through 17. God delights in her beauty. More specifically, God delights in our beauty. The king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord. Bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. We see here, in brief, what we see at greater length in the Song of Songs. Many of us struggle, perhaps, with the Song of Songs. We struggle for many reasons. We often struggle because it uses the language of romance to describe our relationship to God, and that often feels rather strange and odd. It feels over-familiar. Some of us also struggle if, like me, you're a city dweller, and you've never lived on the farm, we may struggle at the fact that so much of the romantic language uses the language of the barnyard to describe the beauty of the beloved. I have yet to compare my wife's beauty to the teeth of a you, right? But the song does, and we have to trust that that was complimentary. Um, And so there's a challenge in terms of context. But there's a greater challenge, I think, that we need to face. It's not surprising, I think, that the song calls us to see the beauty of the Lord. She, representing the people of God, she speaks of the king in ways that describe how handsome and glorious, how majestic and strong, how beautiful he is. And you and I know that though we don't always praise God as we ought, we know we ought to. We know He is worthy of such praise. We know that 10,000 times 10,000 are not enough to name His glories and beauties. But there's a second thing we see in that song, and it's declared here in verse 11 and verse 13. And that is this. God sings of your beauty. God has made you beautiful, and God delights in the beauty of His people. Not his people in the abstract, not his people in a generic sense, but God delights in the beauty of his sons and daughters. 
That's the most staggering thing in the Song of Songs, and that's the most startling thing about the happiness described here. The king delights in her beauty, not merely she delighting in his. We learn that God has made us, God has sustained us, God has saved and redeemed us, and God will glorify us so that he can enjoy life shared with us forevermore. But there's an added wrinkle here. We tend to think about beauty as something that we have put on. We tend to think about glory as something we have earned. But there's a strange beauty and glory that marks the people of God. It's a dependent beauty and glory. It's a received glory and beauty. I was reminded of this last summer as I, in one single day, went to two different church services. In the morning, I went to a consecration. I don't have a bishop, but I have a bishop. I have a friend who's a bishop. And uh, though I'm not a member of that church, I went to observe as he was consecrated bishop. And before he was to take a position of remarkable power in a church, he was called to prostrate himself in humility that others might come to pray for him, to exercise whatever power, whatever authority he has in a godly way. It's a remarkable reminder of the way the Bible characterizes our use of any and all power. The fact that it's always a stewardship. It's always something to be used not for our own whims, but for the ways of the Lord. I went that afternoon to a marriage to see a friend as she was to be married to her beloved. And before they kissed, before they were declared husband and wife, before there was a dance to be had, we heard that marriage is not ultimately about them and their happiness, their satisfaction, but ultimately about God sanctifying them and that relationship that God might display something of Christ and his church, a message we see so powerfully in Ephesians 5, that marriage is there ultimately that all might see and know something more powerfully about the kind of loving care that Christ has for his church, the kind of dependence the church has in life with Christ. In both of those settings, I saw something of a remarkable countercultural vision of happiness. We tend to find happiness and identity so much in either our workplace achievements or in our romantic partner. Who have you married? And what's your job? But here we see, in a consecration and a marriage ceremony, a very different image. Christianity offers a way where we receive, we depend, we humbly and meekly follow the way of the Lord. And you may think, I'm not going to be a bishop, and that's probably likely. And you may think, I've been married, I'm probably not going to have a wedding ceremony soon, or I'll never be married. But all of us Christians have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've taken vows as we have joined this or another church. And in doing so, we too have cast our lot in with a different path to our identity, to our hope, to our happiness. 
But in a world marked by upward social mobility, we have instead cast our lot with the body of Christ, with brothers and sisters who will be our family forevermore. In in a world where making a name for yourself defines your success or your failure, we have cast off our name and in baptism have taken on the name of Jesus as our own. And every time we come forward to receive communion, every time we lift our hands up to partake of the cup, every time we're reminded that we are just as dependent at every step of the journey as at its beginning. That life with God involves a continual dependence. And it's a beautiful, a glorious dependence. It's a dependence that God rejoices in. And as we read in Zephaniah 3, God sings over His people with joy. And so this morning, as you think back, as you consider the year past, And as you look ahead and you think of what might lie beyond tomorrow, there are these two things we must know. The sort of God we've got and the kind of beauty and glory He longs to share with His people. And Christian, know this. Remember that God didn't go to all the bother of sacrificing His Son and saving us from sin, death, and hell to remain indifferent. God did not offer up the all-glorious Son that He might be tolerant of you, that He might be ambivalent about you. God did that, that He might glorify you, that He might make you beautiful by giving you His glory, by shining His face upon you by bit by bit in this life and fully and completely in the life to come, making you conform to the image of God in Jesus Christ, that God might rejoice over what He works in you. We can so easily guard our hearts because of disappointments past. We can lower our expectations. We can watch hope die as we lower the ceiling of our anticipated future. The gospel speaks with candor. The Bible gives us clear words about difficulty, about tragedy, about sinful failing. And we have to confess that. But the way of hope is also the way of happiness. Revealed not only in the words of the Psalter, but in the very way of Jesus, who did go to death but who rose in glory. And our joy and privilege in His gospel is that we share in both. That we are united to Him in His death so that we have died once for all with Him. That we might share in His everlasting joy, in His fullness. The Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Psalm 149.4 tells us, may that be written on our hearts this day and may that mark our prayers, our desires for the year ahead. And now join me in prayer if you would. Lord, we, we thank you for your word, living and active, 
We pray that it might work comfort. We pray that it might encourage deep hope. We pray that it might lead to repentance. And we pray now that you might stir us that in response we might lift up our eyes and our voices that with all the earth and with angels and archangels above, we might lift up our glance to see your glory, to offer our praise, to share in the kingdom of your beloved Son all the more. For it's in his strong and risen name we pray. Amen. And now.